0: Welcome to our small group series, The Life of Moses. If you're interested in joining a small group, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Join us as we explore Life of Moses, the story of the Lord drawing his people out of slavery and into a relationship with him. Good morning. Uh, If you're around here much, you know one of my passions is to talk about the kingdom of God. It's kind of a subject I've been wrestling with for a long time. I really believe what Gordon Fee says about the kingdom of God is true. When he starts his, he's a seminary prof, when he starts his class on the New Testament, he always begins by saying, If you miss the kingdom, you miss everything. And then he repeats it (laughs) and repeats it and repeats it because he wants people to understand that's not just a nice little side issue of theology. That is the heart of our faith. It's the frame from which we should see our Christian life. Uh, um, It's critical. And I don't think we always have a very good understanding. So we decided to do a class. You've heard us talk about the kingdom of God. We've explored it. But uh, we never studied it really, really in depth beyond what you can do in a sermon. So we're going to do a class for five weeks. It's going to start September 30th. Uh, Paul and I are going to teach on the kingdom of God and kind of go in depth, kind of lay it out in the whole of its breadth and complexity and simplicity and import uh, in that class. So uh, 1030, September 30th, it'll run for five weeks. I'd really encourage you. I think this notion of the t- kingdom of God just, just changes how you view your Christian life. It, it gives you a new frame of how you think about Jesus and how you think about why we're here. So, that's coming. Um, I don't know about you, but I hate to wait. Anybody like to wait? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's universal. But I'm, I'm really bad about it. I mean, when I'm in the grocery store, I'm always looking for the shortest line and when I pick the one that's not, i really frustrated. When I come to a, uh, uh, a red light, I always change lines to get into the shortest line. Not because I really have any place to go, I just hate to wait. And then when I'm behind somebody who is accelerator challenged, <laughs> it, just, it just really irritates me. <laughs> yeah, I know, you can relate. Uh, and it's not because I have to get someplace, I just hate to wait. Um, those are easy kinds of waiting. Uh, sometimes uh, in life, waiting isn't so easy but it's something we have to do. If you're a single person and you're waiting to figure out if God uh, has you called to marriage or not, that's hard. If you're a couple who wants to have kids and can't have kids and you're praying and waiting and week after week and month after month and nothing happens, that's hard waiting. When you're in a marriage that's difficult and and you want the dance to shift uh, and it's not shifting, that's hard Hard waiting. Uh, when, when you're depressed and you're waiting for joy, just a little bit of joy to come back into your life, it's not easy. You have to wait. And when you're oppressed and mistreated and you're crying out to God that he might do something and nothing seems to happen, that's hard. I like what Lewis Smedes writes about this Waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Um, Waiting is part of the Christian life, and it is hard. But I think we are called to learn to wait well. This morning, we're going to explore this notion of waiting. We're beginning a new series this morning on the life of Moses. Um, Really excited about studying him. Um, And when we pick up the story this morning, we're going to be in Exodus 1 uh, and and Exodus 2. We're going to discover that a whole nation is waiting. If you're following along the story, you know that... uh, The family of Abraham uh, has gone down into Egypt, and they have gone from favored resident aliens to hated uh, foreigner slaves. And they are waiting. They are going to wait for 400 years for God to do something. So they're going to be for us a prime example of what you do when you wait, and we're going to look at how. How the midwives handle this and how Moses handles this, and we'll get some insight into this whole notion uh, of waiting. But before we get to that, I want us to take some time in this text and come to an understanding of what happened. How how did the the situation become so dire for the people of Israel Uh, um, so that... They're oppressed. What, what, what happened? Because I think it, it's important to us for understand and to, it, it's relevant to our day. So let's look at chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel. It actually starts with and these because it's a continuation of the book of Genesis, Genesis in a sense. He, he lists the names of Israel who went to Gede- Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So there's 70 as this family in Egypt when this starts. But notice what happens. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, they're gone. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became numerous. Uh, The author is trying to communicate that they really expanded. Uh, that the land was filled with him. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power. He doesn't know who Joseph was, doesn't remember what Joseph did. He had had a positive impact on Egypt. uh, And he actually doesn't care. His perspective on the Israelites is different. He said, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Notice the first thing this king does. He he turns it into an us and them situation. Israelites aren't part of us. They're separate. They're the other. And the moment you do that, you create an imbalance because what he's saying is, you know, we're better than them. They're not like us, they're not our brothers, they're not our sisters, they're the other. And and, uh, quite honestly, this man is a xenophobe. A xenophobe is somebody who has a fear of strangers. And he begins to to explain what all his people should be afraid of, they really should be afraid of these people who are living in their midst who are not like them, who who are not Egyptians, who, who are Jews right? Um, They're going to become more numerous than us. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if they get larger and they become more dominant, we're going to lose our majority. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our influence. We can't let that happen. Uh, And not only that, they will join our enemies and fight against us. They had enemies outside. So now he's saying, we got enemies inside. The other those Jews. They're, isn't it interesting how he turns them into enemies? They didn't start out as enemies, but now they're enemies. And and what is he, he's appealing to fear. You should be afraid of them. They're going to, they're going to hurt your way of life. And then he says, they'll fight against us and leave the country. This is actually a Hebrew idiom that means to go up to. And it's really the notion, I think it could be better translated, they're going to take over possession of the land. <laughs> they're going to destroy our way of life, right? They're going to destroy our heritage. We'll end up speaking Hebrew instead of Egyptian, You know, they're going to destroy our culture. Uh, um, They're going to take our jobs. They're going to hurt our economy. They're they're not going to vote like us. They're not going to, they're not us. You ever hear that language? You hear it all the time. Uh, um, It's xenophobia. What it actually is, is a kind of racism that says they are different on us. And there's an insipid superiority, implied superiority in that notion that uh, our culture is better and our language is better and our way, the way of life of the Egyptians is, is much better. We can't, we can't have none of that. So, so we, we gotta protect ourselves. We, we need to look out for our own interests. We need to protect our own tribe. This is (laughs) self-preservation. Notice what he says. He says, come, we must deal shrewdly. This word shrewdly is fascinating. It's the Hebrew word for wisdom, chokmah. And you know what he's doing? He, he, he's taking his xenophobia and he's making it sound so rational and so logical. It, it's just, the, of course we have to do this. This makes sense. Our way of life is threatened. So, so we need to do something. And he begins to justify their enslavement and oppression. In, in other words, because that's the logical thing to do to protect themselves. And he's, he's got a plan, right? He, he's got a plan. So they put them under slave masters, put slave masters over them, to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So first of all, they're going to enslave them. But, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And he goes, oh, crud, this, this is not working. <laughs> They're, 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 they're just, they're, they're, something's going on here. They're, their population just continues to grow. So he gets more intense. The Egyptians came to, to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. In fact, he says, Look, we're going to enslave them, and now we're going to work them so hard, we'll just kill them off. And if that doesn't work, we'll do genocide. In other words, he's going to command the midwives that if uh, a Hebrew woman has a boy baby, you're to kill it. And even when that doesn't work, he then tells the Egyptians, you kill every male child of the Hebrews. But you know, doggone it, it, was hope. it all made sense, it was all logical, we have to look out for our own, we have to be, protect our own interests, we have to protect our way of life, our language, our culture, our our really and what's fascinating it, it says here uh, um can we go back to the first one slide i'm looking for it so they put let's go back to the other slide <laughs> uh yeah but the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread so the egyptians came to dread the israelites isn't that fascinating You would think, because the Israelites are the ones being oppressed, that the Israelites would dread the Egyptians. Uh, This word means to despise, to be disgusted with. But it's the Egyptians who are dreading the Israelites. Why? Well, you see, when you mistreat somebody, you have to justify your behavior. You, You have to explain to yourself why it's okay to enslave someone, and to oppress someone, and to abuse someone, and to take away their rights right? Because you have to maintain your own integrity. So the way you do that is you begin to despise the other. You begin to look down on them. You begin to understand that you're superior. You begin to understand they're they're not quite equal to you. They're not quite human like you. They're not, well, they're kind of like dogs, Jews, Mexicans, Muslims, Rockies. They're the other And we dread them because we're afraid. And we begin to despise them because if we can despise them and we can put them down and we can say them less than, then we can feel okay about how we're treating them. It's okay to take their rights away because they didn't have rights anyway. They're not human like us. You know, they're not, crea- they're black. Uh, you, it, this is not just a historical issue. This is happening today in our world with the Rohingya, right? Uh, uh, they're mistreated because they're Muslim. They're not Buddhist. It's happening in our own country, right? We got to protect our way of life, so we'll just, we'll just shut down everything and look out for our own interests. I told Larry, I said, you know, it's probably really good we get out of the prophets because then we won't have to talk about all this justice stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that once you put that lens of justice on, you begin to see it everywhere because justice is at the very heart of God. We go to this passage and we want to skip over what's happening with Pharaoh and the people and the Israelites and what's behind it. Because it makes us uncomfortable. But here's the hard question I want us to ask. It's simply this. How much are we like the Egyptians? How much are we, either by intent or neglect, mistreating others, taking away their rights, treating them less than, all... Because of Hokmah, it's a wise thing to do to protect our interests and to protect our tribe. And as wise as that sounds, that's not the gospel. Uh, um, Jesus did not just look out for him and his, and his tribe. If he did, he would have died simply for the Jews. And all of us, most of us, if we're not Jewish, would go to hell. But God's design is to bring every nation, every tribe, every every language to himself. Because he sees them as equally valuable. He sees them uh, uh, as the, the children of God. Now, I'm not saying it's illegitimate to want to protect your heritage and your language and your culture, but you cannot do that at the expense of other people's rights. You cannot do that by neglecting their suffering. You cannot do that by just looking out for your own interests. The gospel calls us to look out for the interests of others. And you say, no, Nick, you're just one of those open borders guys. I'm not an open border guy. Our immigration system is incredibly broken. And because it's broken, it's mistreating people and treating them unjustly. And if you don't think that, you just need to expose yourself to more information. It needs to be reformed. Not about open borders. What I'm trying to convince you of is to have an open heart. Yeah. An open heart. And just because just because somebody is li- illegal or isn't documented that doesn't exempt us from the obligation to love them. I'm sorry, it just doesn't. And unfortunately, our country right now, I think sometimes is way too much like the Egyptians. And we go along with it. Okay, we're supposed to be talking about waiting, but I wanted you to understand the situation that the Jews, the Israelites are in here. They're suffering, their life is miserable, and God seems absent. And it all raises this fundamental question. What do we do when life is difficult, God seems absent, and we are simply waiting on him to do something? How, how do we respond? Because that's, that's where the Israelites are, God is hardly mentioned in this first chapter. He's only mentioned in relationship to the midwives, Uh, and and the fact that they're suffering and He's not doing anything and seems absent raises all kinds of questions. What did we do wrong? I thought you were the God of our fathers. I thought you were going to protect us. I thought we you you had a plan for us. What's going on? Why aren't you showing up? And, And they're crying out to Him, and He's silent. You ever been there? Ever been in one of those situations where life is hard and you don't like what's going on and and it's miserable and you're praying and you're asking God to do something and nothing happens? A couple things we we, we need to remember as we wait. Uh, The first is that God is still at work. We assume that if we can't see God's hand, then his hand must not be there. And that's not true. God is doing uh, amazing things at this moment in history with Israel. Uh, um, Here's the three things. And there's more than this, but I I picked these out. First of all, he's forming a nation. He's fulfilling a promise he made back in Genesis 46 and, and Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 22 to create a huge nation. And he's just incubating them in slavery in Egypt. (laughs) He's doing an amazing thing, he's just not doing it the way they expected. Probably not the way they wanted, but it made a lot of sense. In a sense, he's protecting them, even though life is miserable, they're not being attacked from enemies, they're just being oppressed. And, And the text makes it very clear that God is the one bringing the numbers. Second of all, he's creating in them a shared identity. Uh, an ethnic identity and a religious identity. And, and it's being formed in the midst of this corporate suffering because there's, there, there's a, a, a solidarity that comes when, when in your ethnic identity you have this, this mark of suffering, this thing that you've been through together as a people that just solidifies you as who you are. And you see this through history with the Jewish people. As much as they've been dispersed, they they keep that that ethnic identity because of their history. The third thing he's doing, he's developing in them a moral conscience. In other words, their experience in Egypt is to govern their behavior towards foreigners and those who are mistreated. And he keeps, in the rest of the Torah, he keeps coming back to this issue. I'm gonna just put up three verses to show you uh, this. Exodus 23.9, it says do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. He said, don't, don't mistreat those who are not like you, who are other, who aren't your ethnic background, who, who there's no asterisk, by the way, that says if they're legal. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you were foreigners in Egypt, You know what it's like to be on the bottom, the marginal of society. You know what it's like. And he's drilling it into them. Look at Leviticus 19. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. Get this. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. You're to give them the same rights and privileges as those born here. And then this, not just treat them well, but love them. How? As yourself. Why? For you were foreigners in Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. I'm not messing around. I'm, I'm God, I'm telling this is how I want you to behave. This is not optional stuff. And it's not just an Old Testament ethic. Last verse. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 18. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. (laughs) Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and your Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. Folks, I don't get why we don't get this. This, this is just clear. It is absolutely clear. This is, this is not debatable. A policy is debatable, but the fact that our policy has to be motivated out of our love and our concern is not. We cannot just look out for our own interests if we're believers. So, God's at work. So, remember, uh, um, when you're waiting, God is still doing stuff. And oftentimes, He's not doing stuff in your circumstances. Oftentimes, He's doing stuff in you. And second, I think it's important to remember while you're waiting that the story is about Him and not me. <laughs> Since I'm saying things people won't like this morning, I thought I'd continue. Um, <laughs> we come to faith and we think that. Our Christian life is about us. That we're kind of the stars. And that Jesus is a really good addition. Right? And Jesus can come into our lives and he'll help us be fulfilled. And he'll help us be successful. And he'll help us be happy. I mean, after all, that's what we tell people make Jesus part of your life, right? In the end, you get to go to heaven. It's all about you. You're the star. I got news for you that's not the gospel. The story is not about us. The story is about him. And the amazing thing is he invites us to be part of his story. Now, that's cool. <laughs> that's just awesome. But, but quite honestly, we just see ourselves as way too important. We, we read these stories in the Old Testament, you know, about Moses and Joshua and the New Testament about Paul, and we think that God is going to interact with us in the same way he did with Moses and Joshua and Paul. <laughs> probably not. I, I mean, you probably, I'm just gonna be honest, you're probably not gonna see a burning bush. You're probably not going to walk through waters, stood up as walls on both sides of you you probably are not gonna get knocked down on your butt with a blinding light and hear God's voice. All those things happen to those guys. Why? Because it's part of the bigger story of what's God doing. It's not about us, it's about him. We get to participate in that story and there are sub-stories that are meaningful and important but those sub-stories take on meaning and significance because they're tied to his story. And they're not stories about us being happy or comfortable or successful. They're stories about us serving the king and and pursuing his agenda. And oftentimes that's just the opposite. (laughs) It's just the opposite of what we're sold, right? uh, I like this little poem. It's called The Donkey, it's about the donkey that was Jesus rode in on the triumphal entry. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorns, some moment when the moon was blood and then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb, I keep my secret still, fools. For I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet, there was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Our life takes on meaning and significance as we play our part in his story. Our part may be small, it may be big. We don't like that, because we want the story to be about us. The truth is, we might be Job's kids. You know, the ones that got wiped out in one day, because that served God's purpose. Because last time I checked, he's God, I'm not, I'm here to serve him, he's not here simply to serve me. So while you wait, while you wait, remember God's still at work, and the story's not about us. But then there's a couple things we need to do, and I think uh, we begin to understand that uh, by looking at the midwives and Moses, and I'm going to... Uh, do these quick, let's look at the midwives. Uh, the call is to be obedient. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shippa and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on delivery of the stool, if you see that a baby is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let him live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. One of the things going on in the background of this story is this question about who's in charge, who's king. Is it Pharaoh? He's called king along with Pharaoh, or is it God? And it comes to play with uh, this notion, who are you going to obey? These two midwives are named. They're, their name, Moses' name, his family's name. Pharaoh's never named. It's God's way of marking them. And they decide, you know what? I know Pharaoh can kill me, make me suffer, torture me, but I fear God more because why he's he's king so i'm going to obey him i think oftentimes when we're in the midst of suffering life is hard and life is miserable we we feel entitled and our suffering and our discomfort become an excuse for our misbehavior it, it's kind of like you have a hard day at work and you come home and say man it's been a hard day at work i deserve some ice cream or a couple drinks and then we play that out in more significant ways. I'm really lonely, so it must be okay for me to sleep with my girlfriend. My, my marriage is really hard, so it's probably okay if I cheat or end it. I, I, I work really hard to make money, but there's never enough to go around, so ah, lie on my expense account, cheat on my taxes. Forget this generosity thing. It's okay because life's hard. You know, we don't talk much about obedience in the church, not nearly as much as we should. We'd rather talk about God's forgiveness and God's love and God being our friend. But the reality is God is our king, and because he's our king, he makes demands of us. And because we see him as his king, we fear him. In a great way. With awe. And we know he's king. And and because of that, we obey whether life is hard or not. Then we turn to Moses. So from the midwives, we learn to obey. With Moses, we learn to... I'm going to jump ahead here, Tara. With Moses, we learn... Uh, to remain dependent. Uh, Moses has been born. He is now 40 years old. And one day, after he'd grown up, he went out to where his people were and he watched them at hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian and seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. We we learned some things about Moses. He's 40 years old. That's pretty old in that culture. He was raised in the house of Pharaoh, and somehow he has become aware of his identity and his ethnic origin, and he begins to identify with his people. Now, understand what a huge decision that is, is because he is turning his back on wealth and privilege and power. Second thing we learn about Moses, not from this text, but Acts chapter 7, Moses understood before this time that God was going to call him to redeem Israel, to lead them out. He knew that. Acts 7. The third thing we learn about Moses is Moses has an absolute passion for justice. And the author of the text is making that very clear. He sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew, he intervenes and he kills the Egyptians. He sees a Hebrew mistreating another Hebrew, he intervenes or tries to. Why? Because he, he cares about these issues of oppression and justice and he wants to be compassionate. It, 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 this fuels and fires him. It's one of the things that God is going to use in him to free the Israeli people. You see it again when he comes to the well and the shepherds are mistreating the women. He intervenes. Why? Because he's motivated by justice. I don't know how we miss that. It's court his being. The problem with Moses is he wants to do the right thing, he just doesn't want to do it in the right way. Right? He grew up in the house of Pharaoh where the way you got things done was the exercise of your personal power. And he figures, well, God's not doing something, I'm going to. So he turns and begins to depend on himself, and he begins to manipulate and connive. You ever been there? You know, God's isn't coming through, so you begin to think, well, what, what, what do I need to do to make this happen? And pretty soon you're trusting yourself rather than trusting God. So God not only wants us to do the right thing, he wants us to do things right and depend on him. So God says to Moses, Moses, you learned a lot of things in the court of Pharaoh, but not all of them were good things. So you need a little more schooling. I'm going to take you out to the desert of Midian, and you're going to spend 40 years there, and there you're going to learn to depend on me. And once you learn to depend on me, then we'll have another go at this Exodus thing. When you wait on God, you have to be obedient, and you have to remain dependent. Uh, A number of years ago, a guy named Henry Nouwen died. Uh, Not long before his death, he wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys. And in that book, he writes about some of his friends who are trapeze artists, Uh, They were with the circus, and and their lives had a pretty profound impact on him. They were called the Flying Rodels. And one thing uh, they told Nguyen is that there's a very special relationship between the flyer and the catcher on the trapeze. The flyer is the one that lets go, and the catcher is the one that catches. As you might imagine, this relationship is important, especially to the flyer. When the flyer is swinging high above the crowd on the trapeze, the moment comes when he must let go. He arcs out into the air. And his job is to remain as still as possible and to wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him from the air. The trapeze artist told Owen, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher flyer must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him. But he must wait. Some of you are in a hard place right now and you don't feel like waiting. And what you want to do is flail around because life is hard. And you're not sure God will catch you. Let me tell you this morning. God will catch you. If God loved you enough to give you his son, to give us his son, to die for us, don't you think he can and will catch you? Just wait. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.